Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Jesus Spit for the fourth Sunday in Lent. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 3rd, 2011. The Gospel from John chapter 9 this week concludes with a punchline that is both enigmatic and disturbing. We read in John 9, 39 to 41, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Blindness is bad enough, but with blindness there's always hope for healing. The claim to see, on the other hand, can be far worse, for it masks a blindness to the need for corrective vision. In the Christian scheme of things, one of the most dangerous spiritual places we can live is in the deluded notion that we are a fully sighted person. Conversely, the healthiest place to live is not only to acknowledge our spiritual blindness, but also to recognize that as a good recognize that as a good place to live. In acknowledging our blindness, we live in the light. By believing that we see fully and rightly, we stumble in darkness. John chapter 9, 1-41 recounts the healing of a beggar who was blind from birth. The details of the miracle itself comprise only about one-third of the narrative. Most of the story revolves around the disputes that the miracle provoked, followed by Jesus' enigmatic punchline. So many fascinating details merit attention. Earthy descriptions about spit, mud, and the interrogation of parents that characterize an eyewitness account. The casual disinterest and even ignorance about Jesus on the part of the man who received the miracle. The inexcusably cruel insinuation by the disciples that somehow human misfortune the beggar's blindness, was an act of divine punishment. The inherent skepticism and suspicion surrounding the plausibility of a general, genuine miracle. The complex factors at play that can prevent a miracle from evincing genuine faith. And the interactions among the characters in the larger drama. Jesus, his disciples, the blind beggar, his parents, the religious elite, and even the neighborhood community. The professional clergy made all the wrong moves in this story. As in many Jesus stories, in this one religion harms instead of heals. The clergy refused to believe eyewitness accounts of the miracle. They were more concerned to maintain ritual righteousness about Sabbath keeping than to love a fellow human being and rejoice in his wholeness. They blabbered pious cliches. They scapegoated the victim, and the text says, hurled insults at him. 
They condescendingly claimed a spiritual elitism that intentionally humiliated the beggar. They demonized him as a sinner. As they threw him out of the synagogue, their rage exploded. How dare you lecture us, they raged. And with that, their own tragic blindness was confirmed. And the story flipped. It was the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees, not the physical blindness of the beggar, that forms the crux of the story. Acknowledging your own spiritual blindness can be embarrassing, painful, and threatening. To confess your own groping darkness and howling demons, your frustrations, fears, and failures, unnerves us. And as unsettling as that confession is to make to your own self, there's the added anxiety of what others might say, think, or do. We know from experience and from the disciples and the clerics in this story just how cruel and condescending, how derogatory and dismissive people can be towards the blind. Some people will kick you when you're down. We shoot the wounded. Healthy people befriend their blindness and make their peace with it. That's different than self-pity, self-loathing, rationalizing it, or invoking it as an excuse. Spiritually sighted people recognize that acknowledging their blindness is an act of liberation, not a confession of bondage. Perfection, after all, is an awful and oppressive burden to bear. And so only when we identify our symptoms can we experience a cure. The journey toward the light begins when we acknowledge our darkness. In the epistle for this week, Paul urges the Ephesians to live in the light and repudiate the deeds of darkness. But to see ourselves in the world like God does requires radical vision correction. That's because God doesn't look at the world like we do. In the Old Testament reading this week, Samuel anointed David as Israel's new king only after looking at David's seven brawny brothers and hearing God dismiss each and every one of them. 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was the youngest and most unlikely political candidate, but God had chosen him. And so we read in 1 Samuel 16, 13, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. In her essay on the transfiguration of Jesus, Amy Frickholm considers our own transfiguration. She observes how difficult it is to see the world in ourselves like God does. Old habits die hard. Our field of vision is habituated by past choices. Frickham draws on Annie Dillard's essay entitled Seeing, in which Dillard describes a person born blind whose sight was restored through surgery. A healing, you might say, not unlike this week's gospel. But seeing the world with new vision was far harder than you might think, says Dillard. And so... Amy Frickholm writes, The person had to reconcile preconceived notions of the world with objects, colors, and distances. Much of what she saw, 
simply felt wrong. A newly sighted person can easily get the meanings wrong, even though she has a radical new gift. This suggests a spiritual kind of sight as well as a physical sort, that a person having received a radical new gift might struggle to understand precisely how to use it. Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John 9, verse 5. And in his prologue, of course, John uses this image of light no less than seven times. Jesus enlightens the world's darkness. He heals our blindness. But in doing so, he is also the great divider. John 9:16. And again, he says in conclusion, For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Acknowledging our darkness is good and necessary. But even longing for the light carries its own unique risks and rewards. For further consideration and reflection, Contemplate on the poem by Yehudi Amachai. The title of the poem is called The Place Where We Are Right. Amachai is considered by many people, both in Israel and internationally, as Israel's greatest modern poet. He died in the year 2000. Here is his poem, The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Yehudi Amachai, The Place Where We Are Right. For books this week, I review a title by Paul Cohello. It's called The Alchemist, New York, HarperCollins. My edition was in 1998, 197 pages. The Brazilian Paul Coelho, born in 1947, always dreamed about being a writer. His parents, though, had other plans. When he persisted in pursuing his dream, his parents committed him to a mental institution. After a year of law school, bouncing around as a hippie, and a stint as a successful executive in the music industry, Coelho had a vision of a stranger, which stranger, in fact, he met two months later in a cafe. At the encouragement of the stranger, in 1986, he walked the 500-mile medieval pilgrim route called the Road of Santiago de Compostela. And then, two years later, he wrote the present book, The Alchemist, 1988, in its first edition. But when the first edition sold only 900 copies, the publisher decided not to reprint it. Today, that's all history, and The Alchemist has sold 65 million copies. And in his larger work, Coelho's written 30 books that have sold 100 million copies, been translated into 70 languages, and sold in 150 countries.
And so The Alchemist is one of the best-selling books in all of publishing history. It's a simple fable about a shepherd boy named Santiago who follows a recurring dream about finding buried treasures in the pyramids of Egypt. He refuses to live for what he calls only for bread and water, which is what his sheep and even his father do. And he rejects the world's greatest lie that we have no control over our lives and instead are consigned to fate. Instead, Santiago chooses to discover his own personal legend, and so he sets off for the pyramids. He meets many interesting characters along the way, a king named Melchizedek, a gypsy woman, a thief, a crystal merchant, an Englishman, a beautiful young girl, Fatima, and finally he meets the alchemist. There are obstacles aplenty, the fear of mistakes, risk aversion, self-pity, following someone else's dream, feeling like it's too late to change, and even the fear of success. But Santiago perseveres and reaches his destination, although it's not the destination he anticipated. There's a sense in which the alchemist feels rather hokey. Its message might be summarized in simplistic cliches. To thine own self be true. Follow your heart. Live your dream. Don't die with the music left inside of you. This isn't great literature, but let's remember it's spoken to 65 million readers, and so it's fascinating to ask why. When asked about its success, Coelho says, quote, we all need to be aware of our personal calling, end quote. But most of us are thwarted, he says, by four main obstacles. We're told our dream is impossible. We fear betraying the people we love. Defeats can discourage us, and we fear success. There's what Coelho calls a universal language of human longing. And so he writes to help his readers disinter their dreams. The author is the Brazilian Paul Coelho. The title of the book, The Alchemist. For films this week, we go to Mexico in the title, Beautiful, from the year 2010. The writer and director Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, who made Amaris Paris, 21 Grams, in the film Babel, continues his polyglot ways by taking us to the underworld black markets of Barcelona. Uxbal, who's played by Javier Bardem, is a very good bad man. As a middleman street criminal, he manages illegal immigrants from China who manufacture fake designer goods from subterranean sweatshops, where they not only work, but also live and sleep. And also the street vendors from Senegal who peddle such items and dope on Barcelona's sidewalks. Everything in Uxbal's world is caving in on him. Blood in his urine elicits a death sentence from his doctor. He tenderly loves his two kids and bipolar wife. And he genuinely cares for the illegal immigrants whom, let's face it, he exploits. 
One reviewer called Beautiful an urban version of the passion. In other words, Uxbal is a man of many sorrows who was going to die soon, but until then he gives himself up for the good of others. The film is in Spanish, Chinese, and Senegalese French. The title of the film, Beautiful, by Alejandro González Iñárritu. And finally this week, for Lent, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins lives from 1844 to 1889. The title is called Patience, Hard Thing. Patience, hard thing. The hard thing but to pray, but bid for, patience is. Patience who asks, wants war, wants wounds. Weary his times, his tasks. To do without, take losses and obey. Rare patience roots in these, in these away, nowhere. Natural hearts ivy. Patience masks are ruins of wrecked past purpose. There she basks purple eyes in seas of liquid leaves all day. We hear our hearts grate on themselves. It kills to bruise them dearer. Yet the rebellious wills of us we do bid God bend to him even so. And where is he who more and more distills delicious kindness? He is patient. Patience fills his crisp combs, and that comes those ways we know. Gerard Manley Hopkins, Patience, Hard Thing. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 3rd, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.